day is over, you're driving home, you turn on the radio, and you hear a little blurb about a little village in India where some villagers have died suddenly of the flu that has never been seen before. It's not influenza, but three or four are dead. They send some doctors to investigate. You don't think much about it. But then on Sunday, coming home from church, you hear another radio spot. Only they say it's not three villagers. It's 30,000 villagers in the back hills of India. The news runs a little blurb that night on TV. People are heading there from the CDC in Atlanta because the strain has never been seen before. By Monday morning when you get up, it's the lead story. And it's not just India, it's Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran. And before you know it, you're hearing the story everywhere, and they've coined it the India flu, or the I-squared virus. The same day, the president makes some comments and he and, that he and everyone are praying and hoping that all goes well over there. That afternoon, the president of France makes an announcement that shocks Europe. He's closing their borders. No flights from India, Pakistan, or any other countries where this this virus has been seen. That night, you're watching a little bit of the news before going to bed, and your jaw hits your chest when a French woman is shown on air weeping and through translation says that a man is lying in a hospital in Paris dying of the I-squared virus. Worldwide panic begins to strike. As best they can tell, once you get it, you have four days of pretty horrific symptoms, and then you die. Britain closes its borders, but it's too late. London, Southampton, Liverpool, all confirm cases. Tuesday morning, you wake up and the President of the United States makes the following announcement. Due to a national security risk, all flights to and from Europe and Asia have been canceled. By Wednesday, people are selling little masks that go over your face. Some are talking about what we're going to do if it comes to this country. On Wednesday night, you're in a church meeting when someone runs in from the parking lot with news on their phone. While everyone is listening to the announcement, it is said that two women are lying in Long Island Hospital dying of the I-squared virus. Within hours, it seems like this thing is just sweeping across America, California, Oregon, Arizona, Florida, Massachusetts, all report cases. People are working around the clock trying to find an antidote. Nothing seems to be working. Then all of a sudden, the news comes out. The code has been broken. A cure can be found. A vaccine can be made. It's going to take the blood of someone who hasn't been infected. And so, through all the emergency channels, they ask everyone to do one simple thing. Report to your local hospital and have your blood tested. Sure enough, when you and your family get down there late on Friday night, there's a long line. 
And they've got nurses and doctors coming out and pricking fingers and taking blood and labeling it. Your spouse and your kids are out there. And they take your blood and tell you to wait. You stand around, scared, with all your neighbors, wondering if, if this is the end of the world. Suddenly, a young man comes running out of the hospital, screaming. He's yelling a name and waving a clipboard. Before you know it, they've come and they've grabbed your son. Wait a minute, hold on, you yell. They turn to you and say, it's okay. His blood is clean. His blood is pure. We just want to double check to make sure. We'll bring him right back. Five tenths minutes later, they come out crying and hugging one another, some even laughing. It's the first time you've seen laughter in over a week. An older doctor walks up to you and says, Your son's blood is perfect, it's clean, it's pure. And from it, we can make a vaccine that can save the world. As word begins to spread across the parking lot, people are screaming and praying and laughing and crying. As they're celebrating, the gray-haired doctor pulls you and your spouse aside and says, we didn't realize it was going to be a minor. We need you to sign this consent form. You begin to sign and then you pause because you see that the number of pints of blood they need is blank. And so you ask the doctor, how many pints do you need? And that's when the old doctor's smile fades. And he says, we had no idea it was going to be a child. We weren't prepared for this. I'm sorry to tell you this, but we need it all. You begin to object, but he interrupts. You don't understand. We're talking about the world here. Your son's blood is the only thing that can save the world. Please sign. I'm so sorry. We need it all. After some back and forth and some moments that seem like an eternity in numb silence, you sign. They give you a moment alone to say goodbye to your son. You go into that room where he's sitting on a table and he asks you what's going on. You take his hands and say, son, you know that I love you more than anything. And we would never let anything happen to you that didn't have to. You understand that, don't you? Just as your son begins to answer, the doctor comes back in and says, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, we've got to get started. People are dying all over the world. As they pull you from the room, you hear your son saying, Mom, Dad, why are you leaving me? Why are you forsaking me? I'd like to leave you with just a few brief and simple considerations tonight. First of all, I'd like you to consider your need. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the sting of death is sin. What Scripture is telling us is that each one of us has been stung with a deadly disease called sin. 
And it's a worldwide epidemic that kills one out of every one person. And there's no human cure. Secondly, I'd like you to consider the Father. God the Father looked down and saw this epidemic. And he loved the world. He loved us so much that he offered his son. He gave his one and only son over to die so that we can live. To do something that we could not cure our incurable disease of sin. Third thing I'd like you to consider is the son. Jesus came, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us, Scripture says, to save us from this disease. And he did this by living a perfect life, a sinless life. Another way to say this is his blood was clean. His blood was pure. He was innocent. And the gospel tells that, us that even though he was totally innocent, he allowed himself to be pronounced guilty. Guilty in our place. And so as you read the gospels, the beating and scourging that should have been ours was his. The mocking and the spitting in his face should have been ours. The humiliation, being nailed to the cross naked and bleeding out. Brothers and sisters, Jesus willingly gave his blood to save us. Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Last thing I'd like to leave you in consideration is consider your response to that. If you're a believer here tonight, consider your response to Jesus' sacrifice. Consider why you do what you do. Consider even why you come to church. Consider why you're even here tonight. Consider why you live a self-sacrificing life. If you're here tonight and were brought by someone or came because it's Easter weekend and that's the thing to do, if you came and you don't know Jesus, consider your response to Jesus' sacrifice tonight. No matter what you have been told, Christianity is not about rule-keeping. It's not about living a moral life. Christianity is not about having a better life now. Christianity is not about being nice. It's essentially and foundationally about realizing that you have a deadly virus called sin. And accepting the vaccine 
that is forgiveness through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30.